From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. How are you guys doing? Doing okay. You know, we talked a while ago about not starting the show every week with a tragedy or a cyclist death or something like that. But this has been a particularly bad week in Los Angeles, where I live. A producer in the business that I work in, in Hollywood, was killed on a road that Seamus and I ride our bikes on all the time, Fountain Avenue. And he was doored. And I don't know if most people know, but the real tragedy of being doored is that it knocks you into the lane of traffic so that a car coming from behind you hits you. And that's exactly what happened to 51-year-old Bob George. He was riding in a bike stripe, a door zone bike lane. And I've heard people call that engineering malpractice. And it certainly was for Mr. George. But also... Earlier in the week, four young women, seniors at Pepperdine University, were on the PCH at 8.30 in the evening, and a speeding car hit other parked cars that then ran into them and killed all four of them. And today we have with us Damien Kevitt, who is the founder of SAFE, Streets Are For Everyone, and Damien's been on the show many times, and he's out in Malibu now to speak to some people about what they can do to make the PCH safer for everybody. Hey, Damien, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you for having me back on again. Good to be in good company here. I'm here at City Hall. The City Council meeting will be starting in a few minutes. There are a lot of individuals who are quite upset over this quadruple fatality that happened last Tuesday mostly because there has been a lot of effort by this community to reform PCH to no avail. And Caltrans, which is over PCH, has done little to nothing. They've done some window dressing here and there. But it is a well-known dangerous stretch of corridor. It's a high-speed corridor. The speed limit in most places is 45, but vehicles are easily doing 50, 60. And on the weekends when there's less congestion, they're doing far faster than that. Yet at the same time, you have parked cars on the side of the road, you have pedestrians crossing, you have cyclists on the side of the road, you have businesses, you have personal homes directly on the road. It is, from a road safety engineering perspective, it's a disaster zone. I looked up the stats. There's 21 miles of PCH that are specifically in Malibu, which is residential community businesses, et cetera. And there have been, in the last 10 years, 44 fatalities and over 2,000 injuries along this small stretch just in the city of Malibu itself. So the stats themselves are staggering. It should be noted that that PCH through there is also a state-designated bike route. It should have long ago received infrastructure changes. Right. There is a stripe along some of it, but in lots of it, there's not even a bike stripe, meaning that there's no place for bikes. Or I might add surfers. You know, people that are getting out of their car, getting into their wetsuit to get down to the water. It is engineering malpractice. It's absolutely nuts. The good thing is we're not the only ones involved in this. Streets for All is involved in this. I've had probably eight hours worth of meetings with community members, with the sheriff's department, and everyone is on board with using this to really force Caltrans to do their job. Not next year, but now. We just launched a petition 
That petition's already up at 2,500 signatures. We just launched that, and we're working on a coalition letter of demand. And we're just going to keep putting this in the news. And I have several things that I can't talk about that are planned that will absolutely blow this up until right. Caltrans does their job and, and actually makes this corridor safe, With starting with quick build solutions. Can we define that? Quick build are simple solutions that are considered somewhat temporary that go in not necessarily with the full outreach and concrete and things like that that can be done to slow cars down, to introduce space between buffers, between cyclists, or ways to cross for pedestrians. There's a number of ways, and I'm not a traffic engineer, but it's obvious that it's badly in need of solutions at many places along PCH. And I'm just looking at the 21 miles, let alone the rest of PCH, which going south, there's plenty of other solutions needed. And that's included in the ask. The ask is not just how do we solve these 21 miles, but do your job for all the entire stretch of PCH. And don't just be complacent about this road that's a death trap. Damien is not just the founder of SAFE, Streets Are For Everyone, but he's also a survivor of a horrific accident. So he speaks with what he knows. And so, Damien, we're really glad that you're there supporting this cause. Thank you. I'm glad Damien is there because what's going on right now, we are in an epidemic of road violence. Bob George, the Hollywood producer that was just killed, is the 10th person in Southern California to be killed while riding a bike in the last two weeks. We just happen to have the stats for Los Angeles. It's happening everywhere. Today with us, we have David Sforza, one of the consultants for the California Assembly Transportation Committee. He staffed the speed camera bill. Thank you for being here today, David. Can you tell us a little bit about your speed camera bill? It's not my speed camera bill. It's Laura Friedman's speed camera bill. <laughs> I'm going to be a good legislative staffer and start that. She fought hard to make sure it passed this year. It was her third attempt in three years. I believe this is the ninth attempt since the mid-2000s in California to authorize speed cameras. And I've spent the last three years working on it. It's a six-city pilot program. It's passed and it's been signed into law by Gavin Newsom. And it's going to be operated in San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland, Los Angeles, Glendale, and Long Beach. It's something that has been a proven tool across the world, frankly, on reducing traffic fatalities. According to the National Transportation Safety Board, speeding is a factor in 31% of all traffic collisions in California. It's 35%. And the speed that a car is going is highly determinative of whether or not you live or die. If you're a pedestrian and you're struck by a car going 20 miles an hour, you're likely going to live. But if you're struck by a car going 40 miles per hour or greater, you have an 80% chance of dying. Speed cameras have been shown to reduce traffic injuries and fatalities by 54% in urban cores, according to the Federal Highway Administration. It's why Congress and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act for the first time authorized speed cameras to be funded through federal funds. It was previously prohibited. It's the only automated enforcement where federal funding can be used. And it's why states like Florida and Arkansas and states like Oregon, Washington, and now California have either authorized or expanded their use of speed cameras. 
Can you talk about some of the effectiveness in any of those other states that really inspire the kind of continuous effort to get this legislation passed? In the United States, the area that has implemented it, probably the most success has been New York City, which has been operating a program, I believe, since 2013. And it's helped reduce speeding by 73% in the city. And the city has really put together a strong Vision Zero program, both with engineering and traffic camera solutions. And New York City is a city that has twice the population of the city of L.A., I believe around or less traffic fatalities in the city of L.A. One other question about the speed camera bill is the ACLU often opposes it. The ACLU has become increasingly skeptical over the use of cameras and data requirements. A lot of it has to do with the way law enforcement has used automated license plate readers and how that data has leaked. But these things are not automated license plate readers. They're not capturing every single person's license plate. They're only capturing people's license plates that are breaking the law by speeding 11 miles per hour or greater over the speed limit. Thank you, David. Yeah, that was great, David. Thank you. And thanks to Laura Friedman, who stuck with it for three years. Absolutely. Thank you. As we talk about all the tools that we have in our toolkit to make roads safe, one of the things that kind of slipped by me, you guys, was turning right on a red light. And I just take it for granted. I feel like I've done that my whole life as long as I've been driving. But I read an article by Matthew Cantor in The Guardian U.S., and he talked a little bit about how unsafe right on red is. Here's that interview. We always talk on the show about one of the main reasons that more people don't ride is because they don't feel safe. And as Nick often says, we spend most of our show talking about things that we can do that make the roads safer for bikers and walkers, because we know that a community that is walkable is also bikeable. We end up talking a lot about bike lanes and bike infrastructure. But one of the things that has kind of slipped under the radar for a long time is right on red. And as I said lately, I've been reading the Guardian U.S. newspaper. It's really been a wonderful introduction to me because I thought it was just an English newspaper. And our bike talk today is Matthew Cantor from the Guardian U.S. Hey, Matthew. Hey, Taylor. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for coming on Bike Talk. You wrote an article about, I forgot what the title was. Was it banned right on red? Well, the goal was sort of to raise the question as to whether it should be more of a national policy. I think the headline was something like a huge number of pedestrians have been killed in the past few years. Is it time to finally ban right on red nationally? I wonder if you could quickly go through some of the stats that you list in your article about the damage that Right on Red has done to people walking and biking. Yeah, sure. So just for context of what's going on right now, last year saw what looks to be, according to preliminary statistics, a record number of pedestrian fatalities, more than 7,500, which was a 77% increase between 2010 and 2021. So obviously that's not all due to right on red is probably just a tiny fraction of that. But of course, anything that we can do to save lives, I think is worth investigating. So there have been a few studies that have looked at this. It came into play in 1975. The federal government asked states to make right on red their default or else they would lose energy funding. Um, 
because the idea was that there was an oil crisis at the time oh. and they thought that allowing traffic to move more quickly through intersections would save fuel, which may well be true. But on 1981 was the year after the final state, Massachusetts, began complying with the rule. And that year, there was a government report that found that the magnitude of the increase of pedestrian accidents and bicyclist accidents at intersections had ballooned. So estimates were ranging between 43% and 107% for pedestrian accidents and 72% to 123% for cyclist accidents. But you could argue that some of that was probably due to growing pains. That's a very casual term to use for something that could have been fatal, but these rules had just come in place. A few years later, in 1984, another study found that all right-turning crashes at these intersections had increased by about 23%. And for pedestrians, it was about 60%, and cyclists had doubled 100%. Wow. So when um, we talk about saving a little bit of fuel, we have to ask, at what cost is that fuel exactly. saved? I think Right on Red has always been around since I've been driving. So it's just been something that I just have taken for granted. And I didn't mm -hmm. even realize, I lived in New York for 10 years, and I didn't even realize that New York does not allow right on red. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, New York doesn't. And a number of cities in the past couple of years have been kind of cracking down, which is what prompted us to look at this. Cambridge, Massachusetts, I believe, banned it entirely last year. The city supervisors in San Francisco have issued a unanimous recommendation to ban it, but that's not a binding thing. So it looks like it could go that way. Similar advisors to the mayor in Denver have called for it. Washington, D.C. is tightening the rules. Seattle has made it the default to ban Red on Red for new signals. And Ann Arbor also has banned it downtown. So there's definitely some momentum towards this right now. But most of the people that I talked to, pedestrian advocates, cyclist advocates, didn't think that a federal ban was likely to come anytime soon. Oh, well, I don't know if people in smaller cities are seeing this, but we certainly are in Los Angeles and in New York. There is a movement called Leading Pedestrian Indicators. What that does is that changes the light for the pedestrian to start walking before the green light, which is essentially the same kind of thing as banning the right on red in the sense that it gets the pedestrian or the cyclist out into the intersection before the car start moving because then the car can see the person in their line of fire, so to speak, as they cross the street. One of the things that was wonderful about your article, sorry to interrupt you, was yeah. the video that you had. I wonder if you could explain mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that was really fascinating to me. So some researchers in Toronto, which generally you can turn right on red, similar policy-wise, some researchers there put these helmets on drivers that tracked their eye movements, and they looked at what these drivers did at intersections. The drivers had a major, what they call a leftward bias. So they were focused on looking at the cars that were coming from the left so that they could find a gap in traffic that they could turn into, as opposed to watching for the pedestrians who might be on their right, trying to cross in front of them. Drivers were good about looking both ways and checking, but there's still the bias was towards the left. So it did indicate that there's a safety issue there. Right. Well, when you go to Matthew's article at The Guardian US, you can see the video. And it's really interesting that the little red dot of the eye movement darts all around. Yeah, I guess that's just normal whenever we drive. We're kind of constantly scanning every place, but it is very heavy on the left. And so mm -hmm. that's why if you're crossing the street, you always have to make eye contact with the driver or something to say, hey, I'm here. Yeah, it's fascinating to see the video and think about how much information you're taking in at any one point. And, and as um, as one of the researchers that I spoke to, Burson Donmez at the University of Toronto, who conducted the study was saying, you know, attention is a limited resource, which is very true. 
I mean, I'm no neuroscientist, but certainly in my experience, we only have a limited capacity to absorb information. And especially when you're driving, I mean, I'm a very nervous driver and I'm thinking about who's behind me, who's in front of me, who's on all sides and who am I going to hit, who's going to hit me. And it just seems like one less thing to think about if Red on Red was banned. Right. One less distraction. Well, Mm -hmm. I hate to admit this, but I have both been hit in a right on red situation and Mm -hmm. hit someone on Mm -hmm. a right on red situation. I'm a person who rides a bike and I'm also a person who drives a car. And Mm -hmm. on the same street in Los Angeles, Fairfax, I was turning right and I hit a cyclist. That was my fault. The cyclist was there. He did surprise me, but that's the excuse people always say. I didn't see him. I didn't see him. And then seriously, three months later on Fairfax again, I was riding my bike and someone turned right into me and knocked me down. Luckily, I wasn't hurt, nor was the person that I hit hurt because the only good thing about these kinds of crashes is that the car, for the most part, is not moving very fast. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming you're not pulling through in the middle of the night when you think there's no traffic. That's often what happens in Los Angeles is the car doesn't even come to a complete stop. It just sort yeah. of rolls through the stop sign or the stoplight and turns right. If fears of traffic and rights on red and stuff like that are keeping people from cycling, that's also bad for the environment. You know, better if we can encourage people to cycle. So, well, I think it's definitely circular that more people don't walk or bike because they don't feel safe. So there's less people on the road. So cars bully more on the road. And so less people bike and walk. Did you find in your research any people that were staunchly against changing back to the way we were before the 1970s? Just in sort of reading about it, I've found that some civil engineers, for example, in Richmond, Virginia in 2020, they did a study that found that it would slow down traffic and it would increase air pollution. But as I said, it's a question of how do you balance climate effects with risk to individual lives? I also talked to pedestrian advocates and cycling advocates. The pedestrian advocate who's based in LA, and he was pointing out, well, he is also a driver, and he- Yeah, that's John Yee, correct? John Yee, yeah. John's been on the show a couple of times and is really a wonderful advocate for everybody on the street. Yeah, he's the executive director of an organization called LA Walks, and he certainly understands the pushback against it and doesn't think that it's likely to take place because people in LA, at least, are invested in getting home more quickly. Sure. But- If Massachusetts and New York and other places are doing it, and if we all did it before 1970 or 1974, I forgot the exact date, it seems like it's an easy, well, not an easy fix, but a possible fix. And Mm -hmm. going by the moniker that all politics is local, maybe that's where we need to start making the changes. Again, I don't know who controls all the stoplights. Is it LADOT in a city like LA or why does it need to be a federal ban? I don't think it needs to be. And I think you're right. I think starting local is much more likely to be effective because it's really not an all or nothing sort of question. As some of the cities that I mentioned have done, you could ban just right on red, just downtown, just in the busiest areas. Um, You could step up enforcement of the ban and you could do it in some cities rather than others or just in high congestion areas. areas. And we do see that in cities like Los Angeles, where there are signs that say no right on red. Right. Yeah. So there are lots of those. And maybe the more realistic approach rather than a federal ban is just an increase in the number of intersections where it's individually banned. Well, it's certainly one tool in the quiver of tools that we have and need to make streets safe. 
Well, hopefully articles like yours will wake people up to the different things we can all do to make the road safer so that you don't have to spend a gallon of gas to buy a gallon of milk. Mm -hmm. Matthew Cantor, thanks so much for writing the article. Thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. I have a t-shirt that I love that says, education is important, but riding your bike is importanter. And on that note, I want to introduce Emily Stein, who's joining us, and she's from Safe Roads Alliance in Massachusetts. Welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you. I have to say there was International Walk, Bike and Roll to School Day, October 4th, and it was so wonderful to be on bikes with kids. My middle schooler refused to join, but I went ahead anyway, and it's just a really, really great way to start the fall, start the school year, to see more kids getting to school on bikes. But along with that comes pushing for safer roads because there are just some roads that I will not imagine my kids going on. So yeah, on a local level, we're trying to get some paths going that will go directly to the schools. Well, chances are, if you weren't leading the ride, your middle schooler would have loved to have done it. But because his mom (laughs) or her mom was leading the ride, no way are they going to do it. True that. (laughs) You guys focus a lot on education. Yes. So our organization was founded as a nonprofit in 2006. And around 2010, after identifying a gap in information, we developed something called the Parent Supervised Driving Program. This was before a lot of GDL or graduated driver's licenses went into effect across the country. And teen death rates were so high because they just weren't getting the correct education at home. And research continues to show that the most influential thing when a teen is learning how to drive is their parents, is their caregiver. So this guidebook is provided at uh, DMVs, driver's ed locations across the country in 25 states, 26 states. Again, we're just hoping to work with state agencies to get these books into the hands of families as teens are learning to drive. And since I came on in 2016, we made sure that there is a page in this guidebook on sharing the road with vulnerable road users. So we collaborated with MassBike and Walk Boston and local advocacy groups to make sure we had the correct information in there. So we included the Dutch reach and the importance of turning your body to make sure that the cyclist is not going to be doored. And a lot of good information in there that I think a lot of people just might not be aware of if you are not a cyclist, if you're not a pedestrian. We distribute that book. And then the other education piece that I'm really excited about is a new program that we just launched in 2022 with our partners on distracted driving awareness and prevention. And this program is geared towards kids in second to sixth grade. So it's all about educating the backseat drivers. These kids are so good at nagging. They're so good at following the rules at this age. And this started when my daughter saw me pick up a call while I was parked in the driveway. And she said, mom, you can't talk on the phone when you're driving. And all the PSAs and all the citations and threats of getting a ticket They're just not getting into so many adult heads that distracted driving is an incredibly dangerous, selfish, and unnecessary thing to do while you are operating a vehicle. So we're applying for grants, so there's no cost to schools, after schools, summer camps, and it's just a one-time lesson, and it's teaching kids to recognize what distractions are, period, how humans are not good at multitasking, and then we tie that to distractions that can be 
a problem, such as walking across the street while looking down at your phone and not making eye contact with the driver or being a distracted cyclist. A distracted cyclist? <laughs> Seamus, you know anything about that? Nick? I... Well, if you are a middle school child with no helmet and on your phone with a group of kids, oh my gosh, we're having some serious issues with that in our area. <laughs> right. But yeah, our main focus is, hey, what do your parents do? Do you ever feel unsafe in the car? Do you ever see a parent who might be on their phone, who might be eating a sandwich while driving? You know, it's not all technology. We want to make sure that we look at other distracting behaviors, such as putting on makeup, eating, reaching over into the back or front seat. So we talk about that. And then we also focus on their own behavior as backseat passengers. It's a really interactive program. We have them brainstorm, hey, what do we do that could be distracting and how can we change that? So we bring in a formula they use to speak up using non-confrontational I statement language. And so that way you're not pissing off your parent or caregiver, you're just being respectful. We did some research pre and post surveys and showed that kids are learning that this language is working. So that's available. It's free. The materials are free. How do people get the booklet? So the parent supervised driving program is a booklet, and that's when teens get their permit. They should be able to get it at the DMV or driver's ed location. The Kids Speaking Up for Road Safety is just a, a website with on our partner's website, endd.org, and they can download materials there. And they can always reach out to ask questions and request materials through us. Well, it sounds like a great program, Emily. Thanks a lot. And thanks right. for coming on Bike Talk. Our next interview is with Henri Drolet, and she's been doing tactical urbanism, like around a school where you have a crossing guard. Henri Drolet took a group of people out and made a crossing guard on a very busy street in Los Angeles. Yeah, that is brave and really impressive. I think I might opt more for putting tires and cones out. And it's amazing what people can do with tactical urbanism. And I'm hoping that we can see more and more of this pop up because it doesn't take much right. to realize how we need to share space. Well, thanks, Emily, with Safe Roads Alliance for coming on. We'll see you again. Thanks so much. We have Anne-Marie Drolet on. Hello, and, how's it going? Uh, welcome back, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Good to be here. Anne-Marie, you are a bike mechanic, but you're also kind of an activist? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> She's done... a tactical gorilla, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We use gorilla tactics with my group, No More Ghost Bikes. Tactical urbanism, or you did a gorilla crosswalk. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so we basically acted as crossing guards. We had stop signs and we used them to help people cross the street at a really dangerous intersection in Elysian Park. Maybe first, Anne-Marie, you could tell the audience what a ghost bike is. I think probably a lot of people know, but maybe some don't. Yeah. So a ghost bike is a physical bike painted all white, and it's a marker of where a cyclist has been killed. So you usually see them on the side of the road where an accident or an incident, I should say, has happened. So it's used as a way to show that someone died there uh, to mm -hmm. remember them, to honor them. Because a lot of times people don't know that these incidents happen. Right. Well, what's sad sometimes is that when a white person is killed on a bicycle, it makes big news. But when a brown person is killed on a bicycle, sometimes it doesn't make big news. And that's why a group like yours, No More Ghost Bikes, is important. Yeah. Sadly, that's very true. 
I was actually reading that unhoused people as well, you know, low income or no income people are 40 times as likely to be hit by a car. And a lot of times people don't even know about it because they're seen as nameless people out there, but they matter too. Right. How did you get to the intersection that you did this on and what did you do? So this is a part of the park that I go through a lot. I love going to Elysian Park all the time, as do thousands and thousands of people. I was actually crossing this intersection. It's Stadium Way and Elysian Park Drive, which you use to cut through the park. When you say Stadium Way, that's for Dodger Stadium, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's the road. Well, it's considered a secondary highway, and it leads to Dodger Stadium. So during Dodgers games, it's just a sea of traffic. So anytime you're trying to cross from one side of the park to the other, it's really terrifying. And I was with a group of other cyclists, so we were able to kind of force the traffic to stop. But it feels like kind of a ridiculous thing to have to do just to cross the street. So that kind of spurned the idea to do a gorilla crosswalk. So what did you do? What is a gorilla crosswalk? Yeah. So uh, a gorilla crosswalk is just getting handheld stop signs and acting as a crossing guard. So we just sat at this intersection. We had people on both sides. So one side would be Elysian Park Drive and the other side is Angels Point Road. And anytime we saw a pedestrian or a cyclist approaching, we would hold up the stop signs, get into the street and help them cross the street. It's, It's pretty simple, but it was really impactful. It's really cool. You know, it makes me think of crossing guards at schools. I mean, we've been doing this for years and we never thought that that was tactical urbanism, but they had a crossing guard at my elementary school back in the 1970s in Michigan. Yeah, I was kind of surprised at how well it works. People really respond to stop signs, (laughs) (laughs) which is great. You know, it'd be nice if we even just had stop signs at that intersection. And there's no crosswalk. There's no crosswalk. It's six lanes of traffic. I haven't heard of any deaths there, but everyone I talk to hates this intersection. A lot of people won't even attempt to cross it because it's six lanes of traffic that you're having to fight through. It's always stressful to cross it. So we were like, we should just try and see what we can do. Count how many people are crossing the street, collect data on it. I think we ended up helping 95 people cross the street in like a four and a half hour period. And that was on a slow day. You know, something about an intersection like that, like you said, in a Dodger game, it's packed, you know, bumper to bumper with Mm -hmm. cars. But on other days, it's not. So cars can speed on that section of road because it is so wide. Yeah. And that's another huge problem. The speed limit is 35, but it's very obvious they're going way above that. You know, they're treating it like a highway. Because it is a highway. It's three lanes in each direction. You're totally right. Were people crossing before you were there over these six lanes? Yeah, I mean, people are always crossing that street. You just have to really be hyper aware and make a run for it. And people were a little surprised that we were there. You know, they're not used to anyone helping them cross the street there. Yeah, there were a lot of people trying to cross. Was there any pushback from police or from motorists? So the only pushback we got was from a fire marshal, but he was more concerned with the media presence. They said that we couldn't film in the park for some reason because there was a news crew there. 
but they showed them the credentials and they went away. We even had some cops come through the intersection and they stopped at our stop signs, but they didn't (laughs) say anything. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, which was a little surprising to me. You know, I was worried that maybe they would push back. Well, maybe they would pay you next time. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) We're doing a service for the city. I also want to know what else you've done, what other tactical urbanism besides placing ghost bikes. But is that a thought when you do something like this, that maybe you can show your data about how effective it was to the city and they might put in a crosswalk or something? Yeah, absolutely. And a couple of our members were even able to meet with representatives from District 1 and 13, because this specific intersection is kind of the line between council districts 1 and 13. They were able to meet with representatives who basically told us there was a lot of red tape because there haven't been any deaths at this intersection. It's not on their list of places where they really, really need to build a crosswalk or something. That's BS. I'm sorry. That's crazy. We have to wait for someone to die to do something? Exactly. It shouldn't be reactive like that. It should be preventative. This is very clearly a dangerous area, and we shouldn't need for someone to die first to prove that it's dangerous. Well, how often do you place ghost bikes, and what else do you do in terms of this kind of work? So we don't actually place the ghost bikes. We just have it in the name that we don't want there to have to be any more ghost bikes placed. Basically, we want an end to the deaths because of traffic violence. So it's kind of a call for that. But other things we've done, we had a short campaign to get people to vote for local leaders who supported bicycle infrastructure. So that was a social media campaign we did. And that one was pretty cool. We ended up getting really progressive people. We can't take all the credit for it, but I would hope that we helped a little bit. We helped spread the word about people coming to a transportation budget meeting to get their thoughts in and kind of led them with all of our concerns around cycling and pedestrian infrastructure. Yeah, things like that. We try to do sort of direct action events as well as working with the system we have because you kind of need to use a lot of tactics to approach this. It's such a big issue. You know, that's something that we've been talking a lot about on the show is what is the best approach? Do you work within the system Mm -hmm. or do you fight the system? And I think that there are times to do both. Sometimes you have to work within and get people to vote and show up at meetings. And sometimes you have to do tactical urbanism and just show what the intersection might look like if it was made safe. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like in this case, working through the city clearly... wouldn't work uh, or wouldn't work very quickly. So we need to put pressure on the city. And this is one way we can do it. Thanks for coming on again, Emery. Maybe next time we'll have some more mechanical questions for you. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Let me ask you one thing before we go. Who removes the ghost bikes? Because I have seen ghost bikes on locations Mm -hmm. for a while and then all of a sudden they're gone. And is that the city that takes them? Or do the people who put them there take them and move them around? As far as I know, it's the city that does it. I'm not sure why someone would remove a ghost bike. Right. That seems really disrespectful to me. So I think it's just the city removing them. That's my guess, at least. Yeah. It's a sad reminder of how unsafe our streets are. And we're in the middle of an epidemic right now of unsafe streets and cyclists and pedestrian deaths. Yeah. Yeah, we really are. I have it in my head that if somebody complains, it triggers the city to remove it. Like just one person complaining. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they see it as an eyesore or something, which is, again, so disrespectful, in my opinion. It's a memorial. Yeah, exactly. 
So no more ghost bikes. Anne-Marie Trollet, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you for having me. So that was Anne-Marie Drolet on the Tactical Urbanism Crosswalk in Los Angeles near Dodger Stadium. And she talked about ghost bikes. And going back to the top of the show where Bob George was killed on Fountain, that was a block away from where a memorial had been placed for where a pedestrian was killed on the same street in the same block seven years previous. For people in other parts of the country, Fountain is one of the only ways to get across town. Our next interview is with Derek Johnson, city manager of San Luis Obispo. And this was by our co-host, Lindsay. Here it is. Welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Lindsay Sturman, and I'm here with Derek Johnson, who is the city manager from San Luis Obispo. Welcome, Derek. Thanks, Lindsay, for having me today. I really appreciate it. You actually cross two worlds of bikes because you're both a cyclist, and I understand you've raced bikes. You're on teams that are winning bike races, and you're also a city manager of one of California's premier bikeable cities. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on the show, and I'm really excited to be here. This is a passion area that I have. My life is one about being on two wheels most of my life since I was a little kid. And fortunately, I grew up in a community that valued investment and different types of infrastructure back then. It's not the class one bike lanes you see today, but we had separated bike lanes that got me to my junior high and my high school. And in the neighborhood that I grew up, I was able to go to a neighborhood elementary school. And so I literally coasted down the hill on my BMX bike. And so early on from my childhood, I kind of developed some patterns of getting around my town whether it was going to school or going to practice or going to work by bike. Can you define class one for listeners who don't know exactly what that is? Yeah, class one is that separated bike lane. So you're not having to mix with other modes of transportation. So you're off on its own separated bike path. And so both where I grew up in at UCSB, you would kind of transition at some points, you'd be on a class one bike path. Sometimes you go into a class two, which is that kind of separated shoulder where there's some paint or maybe some other investments in infrastructure that keep you separated. And then you've got the class three where you're mixing with the traffic. And that's the least desirable for cyclists. So that love of cycling eventually matured over time. So I started racing bikes and I race today on a team where we have multiple national champions and various disciplines from mountain biking to road racing to cyclocross. And then I've been able to pass this passion on to my kids and being in San Luis Obispo, they ride their bikes around town. And so they ride their bikes to school and that's how they're getting around as well. That is amazing. And sounds like just the most utopian childhood. Yeah, I've been fortunate and I've also had my close calls and I've had, unfortunately, through my time riding on bikes, had friends who have been killed riding and people who have been severely injured. And we're seeing that here in San Luis Obispo. We've unfortunately are seeing right now some trends that are happening across the United States. Some of the data that I'm looking at is most of the westernized world is seeing a downward trend in the number of pedestrian and bike accidents, with the exception of Switzerland and the United States. I haven't looked at the data in Switzerland, but looking at the data here in the United States, it suggests that there's a number of factors. One is vehicle speeds and roadway design. Two, the size of vehicles in the United States. I'm just always shocked when I go out these days and I see a pickup truck and the top of the hood is where my shoulder is. I mean, it's five plus feet off the ground. And so if you're hit, you just have a much less chance of survival. 
And then the third factor attributed is kind of American rugged individualism, where people just are not necessarily inclined to consider the collective good or really sharing the road with people who are riding in different modes or walking. Right. And so we know from the data that if we're going to change behaviors and get people who are curious and interested, but cautious to get out and ride bikes, then we're going to need to build infrastructure. And that's what we're doing in San Luis Obispo. So tell us about that. It has been, I would say, an interesting journey. It really began before being the city manager. I was the community development director, and we had been for quite some time really resistant to a lot of housing development. And then I think quickly we realized that there was a tremendous amount of opportunity for the city to meet its equity and diversity inclusion goals by building more housing and also achieve climate goals by having more infill housing and in turn create complete neighborhoods where people could have improved quality of life. And then when we started looking at the housing opportunities, we quickly realized because San Luis Obispo is the 16th oldest city out of the 482 cities in California, that there wasn't enough roadway to really provide if everyone took continued to drive single occupancy vehicles. So we knew to really achieve our greenhouse gas objectives and not otherwise have prolific increase in congestion that we needed to change people's behaviors and get them on bikes and walking. And we knew the most powerful tool to do that was through land use and through densification and infill development. And so we're doing that. We're seeing a lot of those projects come to fruition right now. So as we see these housing projects come forward, we're having to match our commitment to our greenhouse gas reduction goals and our mode goals with investments in multimodal transportation. And so we've been planning a bunch of separated bike lanes. And I'll share one example. Downtown in San Luis Obispo, we have two main commercial arterials. They were both previously three lanes, and we had speeds that matched that. Speeds were 40, 50 miles an hour, even though the posted speed limit was 35. And we know from the data that if you get hit by a vehicle going 35 miles an hour or more, your chances of survival are pretty low. We can get you to 30 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour or less. If you do get hit on a bike or as a pedestrian, you have a greater chance of survival. And so we put both of those roads on a road diet. We shrunk them down to two lanes. We put in separated bike lanes and made some investments. And as a result, some of our speed studies are showing that we've gotten vehicles down to the 30 to 35 mile range below the posted speed limit. Mm. And we're also seeing an increase in bike ridership. So I'm seeing anecdotally, and I don't have the data at my fingertips, but I'm seeing people that I've never seen before, older people, younger people who are able to use these facilities. And so these have been great investments in our downtown that have really helped in some of the neighborhoods. But right now it's an incomplete network. We need to extend that network in other parts so you can go from one end of town to the other end of town. And in the next five years, if everything goes to plan and we've got close to $15 million worth of grant funding, we're really going to make some significant improvements to increase safety for travelers. How did you get the speeds down from 45 to 30, 35? You know, you hear oftentimes, well, just get police officers out there. We know that police officers, you go out there and you do some focused traffic enforcement, you might get behavior shifts for six months. And the data shows that if someone's driving or if they're actually ticketed, they see someone who's been ticketed, it changes their behavior for about six months, but then they'll snap back to their old patterns. And Mm -hmm. so 
lot of our roadways, they were just big roads with 12-foot lanes with really no curb extensions or any sort of landscaping that provided visuals friction. So when I say we put the roads on road diets, it was a combination of narrowing the lanes, investing in infrastructure and in landscaping with signage so that the roadway felt different. Mm. You know, you got on it, you knew that, hey, there's going to be people walking and biking because there were visual and other cues that I can't just put pedal to the metal and drive down this road. How much did you narrow the lanes from 12 feet to? I think to 10 feet. We went down to 10 feet. And I've always been curious, did you ever stumble on any data that correlated a speed with a width of the street? Design could dictate speed. Yeah, I should say all of this is happening because I have an amazing team from Cal Poly. We've got one of the best design schools in the nation. I've got the best planning school in the nation, one of the best architectural schools in the nation. And out of that comes a lot of talent who are traffic engineers. And so we do know that in general, when you reduce the lane widths, that it does reduce traffic speeds. And so we've seen that happen. And it's not a one size fits all. Some places it works, some places on our commercial arterials where we've got delivery trucks or other uses, it doesn't quite always work. And so we're always trying to balance that. But I think the paradigm shift that may be helpful for your listeners is that we've shifted that paradigm in a way that we're always leaning towards accommodating the pedestrian and the cyclist, mm. rather than having the reaction of, well, we're trying to accommodate commercial delivery trucks or in a lot of cases, fire trucks, right? That always comes up in conversations. Right. So how did you collaborate with the fire department around some of this? Yeah, the good news is we have, I would say, a broad ethic across the city leadership team to really embrace this idea of balancing out both response times from public safety and at the same time improving safety for the travelers. Mm. And that's kind of a push-pull. And I hear from my fire chief. My fire chief tells me loud and clear, hey, some of the quote-unquote road furniture that you've put in and around the city is slowing some of our response times or creating congestion that's making it more difficult. But I think that's the trade-off with not seeing as many accidents or at least the fatal accidents on our road. And so that's the push-pull. It's always an active conversation. We're not always done. And I think it's not every single route at the same time. I think we know this around bike planning. We can't change every single block, but what we can do is create these thoroughfares and networks that work to get you most of the places that you need to get on roadways that are otherwise safe and protected, which ultimately resulted in reorganizing the city transportation staff we went from a staffing system, which was a transit team, to a kind of active transportation team, to a parking team, to now we have a multimodal team and they're all under one group and they're coordinating all those efforts together. Wow. That feels like a game changer that other cities could model. It is. And San Luis Obispo has done a lot. We have a long way to go. I would say the city that we've really modeled after is Boulder, Colorado. Boulder is doing some really fantastic work. We're always looking to them. And I'm just amazed at the work that they've done. I would say they're probably five to 10 years ahead of us. My experience has been that it takes two to three years for people to adapt to those investments. 
We had another roadway near a neighborhood where we went from four lanes down to two lanes to put a buffered bikeway and a bike path where there was none before. And we experienced the same outcomes we had shared earlier was reduced speeds and the street could still handle the volumes. And we probably got, I would say, some knee-jerk reactions for the first couple of years. But I think now, for the most part, people understand the reasons why the city did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's rough early on. And I think also at the same time, and these are some of the lessons learned from some of our interactions with Boulder, Colorado, is that you also have to be humble enough as city leaders to say, oops, it didn't work the way we thought, and we're going to change. So sometimes paint can be your best friend rather than going in with a lot of concrete and other things. You can do a lot of traffic calming with flex posts and paint and try things out. And then if it works, then go in with the permanent improvements. So we've done a lot of learn by doing, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the slogan for Cal Poly. Oh, wow. That is so cool. And how much do you think having this major engineering university in your backyard How much do you think that's affecting all this progress? Well, I think a lot of it is because we've got a lot of young people, a lot of people who don't want to get too wonky, but their neuroplasticity is one where they're open to ideas and open to change. And so we're able to harness that creativity and ideas and readiness to accept that and balance that with the neuroplasticity of the older generation of folks who have crystallized knowledge and crystallized understanding of things. And so it's a little bit of a push-pull. And so that's what makes it fun. And I would say having a university means you also have community that's really well-educated, highly engaged, and has lots of opinions. Be informed about everything. And so it just keeps you on your toes. People will ride their bikes and walk if you have something interesting for them to go and experience, right? I think that's one of the things we learned from the pandemic is that sure, things are great, but experiences are really what enrich our lives. And so the pandemic really opened up a lot of opportunity. I mean, we did things during the pandemic that would have taken us decades, Mm. but we, and I'm really grateful to the community and the city council that they gave me the permission to do things, whether it was a rapid implementation of parklets, putting roads on road diets, striping. We experimented and had kind of a living laboratory during the pandemic that would have taken us years to do. And I'm just grateful that I had the permission from the community and the council to do that, but also a staff that was equipped and talented enough to be able to do that in a thoughtful way. Wow. And From all the experimentation, what are your favorite examples of things that worked? Yeah, so we have a historic mission. San Luis Obispo is a mission town. And so one of the walks right next to our mission, we had two just really thriving restaurants to continue to thrive today. And we all wanted to eat and we needed to eat outside. So it was a very narrow roadway. I think the road was probably 35 feet from curb to curb. And so putting parklets in really constrained things. And we were able to, in a few weeks, put that road to one way, do a two-way cycle track on that road and restripe it and put out a bunch of planters. And now it is an iconic roadway right next to one of the most historic landmarks in California. And we did that in a few weeks, but it didn't happen. We didn't just get it right all at once. We experimented with closing it. We tried different striping, different patterns. 
And we got feedback from retail merchants versus restaurants. And so we took all of that input and then the data and the feedback from how people were using it in a short amount of time, we were able to then figure out the right recipe to make that block work. Wow. Wow. Well, Derek, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. This has just been amazing. Well, thanks for having me, Lindsay. Thanks for all your work. I really appreciate it. And it's been great talking to you today. Great show, Seamus and Taylor. Well, it really helps our show if we get feedback from y'all. So keep listening. We really enjoyed doing the show. Thanks, everybody. How about taking us out with a quote, Taylor? We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we use to create them. Albert Einstein. Thanks, everybody. Take care, guys. Stay safe. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.